So if you're able to stand, would you please stand in reverence for the reading of God's Word? We're only reading two verses today. Matthew chapter 5, verses 31 to 32. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Let's pray. Dear God, we thank you and we praise you that you have given us your word and you have given us structure by which to live as your people. But God, in our sinfulness, we often take your law and we make it something that you never intended. And that is a failure, not just for our generation, but for all generations who have called you their Lord. We see this in what Jesus is teaching, that marriage is your gift to us, Father. We thank you for that. And it represents something grand. It represents something glorious and it points directly to your love and your connection to us. It's a serious institution. It is a something that we take for granted too often. And I pray, God, that you would cause us to see what your son, Jesus Christ, is teaching here. Help us to wake up to the truth of the seriousness of marriage, but also this, the failure of making punishing people. Lord, we need your insight today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please have a seat. Jesus begins here in verse 31. It was also said, it's a continuation here in chapter 5 of the you have heard that it was said passages. If you remember in chapter 5, when we look at verses 17 through 20, Jesus is explaining and he's introducing the rest of this chapter by saying, I have come to fulfill the law. I have not come to abolish the law. I have come to fulfill it. So nowhere is Jesus saying that Christians are not bound by God's law. We talked about this several weeks ago. Anyone who claims that Christians and the church um, is uh, that we are somehow free from obeying God's law. That is a heresy of the church that I didn't use the word, but it's called antinomianism. It's something that has been around from the very beginning of, of the church, and it's a false understanding that we don't have to obey God's law. Yes, we do. The question is, what is Jesus teaching here? He's teaching that the law is still necessary. God's law is important and it is not to be taken lightly, but more fulfilling it, Jesus says, I am fulfilling what the law was pointing to. And so even here, as we come into this passage on divorce, let's understand some very important things. Divorce is not good. I'm going to set that at the very beginning. Divorce is not good. Nor should any Christian be counseled to seek divorce, especially as the first choice. We're going to get into some possible scenarios about the greater and lesser evil here at the end. But I want to make sure that we understand on the outset, divorce 
is something that is not good. And if anyone in this room has ever been through that in your past, I think you can attest to the pain that that brings. And so no one who looks at divorce seriously can ever argue that divorce is a good thing. And neither is Jesus. That's what I want to make sure we understand. Jesus in this text, verses 31 through 32, never gives permission to seek divorce. So let's understand what he's saying here. We have to remember that as Jesus is teaching here, Jesus didn't teach in chapter and verse like we have here. He didn't teach in little segments. He he taught in long... Like this is the Sermon on the Mount. This is... Uh, we're... If, you think my sermons are long. Jesus had this sermon here that we're going to be studying for weeks and months. And that's one long sermon, chapters five through seven. If you, I mean, if you study it and read it and meditate on it, it's, this, this is actually a summarized version of probably what Jesus really taught in the moment. It was probably an all day event as he was teaching on the mountain. People used to have time for that and actually desired to sit under the preaching of God's word at one time. But now after 30 minutes, our, uh, Attention span goes away, and uh, oh, uh, we got to get to the restaurant before the line gets long. And and oh, uh, wait a minute, I I got a I I didn't get my sugar fix this morning. I didn't get my coffee, so now I'm falling asleep. We, we don't focus on the word anymore. Here's what God is saying here. Jesus is teaching something important. If we look at verses 31 through 32, we have to take it in context with the previous verses, verses 27 through 30 that we looked at last week. As Jesus is talking about adultery and the horror of that act, then he's segueing directly into divorce because what is the number one cause for divorce? And that is one party or perhaps both parties of the marriage probably fall into the sin of adultery in some form or fashion. And so adultery here is carried into this passage and the, the word here for adultery is this idea of intimacy outside of marriage. Intimacy that husbands and wives know is a gift of the Lord. It's a gift of God to us. Any intimacy outside of that framework is wrong. It is sinful. It is adultery. Whether you're married or not, I'm just going to point that out to you. Any intimacy with another person in the context that marriage has that is outside of marriage is what Jesus is defining as adultery. That is the leading into divorce. We made it very clear last week that adultery is a distortion of God's gift. Marriage is God's precious gift. What Jesus is teaching here in verse 31, it was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. I've listed in your bulletin, if you look on the inside and you wish to study this deeper, on the inside I've given you several passages from the scriptures that address this issue of divorce. And we look here in verse 31, it was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. That comes uh, from the Mosaic law. Uh, you could uh, several different passages to deal with it. Deuteronomy chapter 24 deals with that. And we're going to look at that here in a little bit. But I want us to look first at the passage here that Jesus is teaching because when Jesus teaches about divorce, he says in verse 32, but I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. 
And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. This is what has been called the exception clause. And I want to make sure that we understand that what Jesus is teaching here is not giving license to divorce. But it is a very important text because I want us to compare what Jesus is saying here with other passages. Look to Luke chapter 16 for me. If you have your Bible, flip over to Luke chapter 16 because what Matthew 5.32 says is similar to Luke chapter 16. And many scholars, when they compare the Gospels, will say that these two passages are parallel because they're similar words, similar settings, and perhaps these were recorded and, and written down uh, from, if not the same teaching scenario, very similar. Luke chapter 16, verse 18, only gives one verse to the whole divorce issue. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery, and he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. Now, Luke chapter 16, verse 18 is very clear. Divorce and remarriage, according to this one verse, is an act of adultery. But we have to ask ourselves, if that's the case, why does Jesus, in Matthew's account, in verse 32, have the exception clause, except on the ground of sexual immorality? Because you have to ask yourself, divorce, like we just said, I would say primarily leads to infidelity, or it's the result of infidelity. Someone, or both parties, have gone outside of the marriage covenant and had intimacy with someone else. That's a break of the marriage vows. That's a break of the marriage covenant. But when we look at Luke chapter 16, verse 18, it's, it, it seems very clear, cut and dry. Divorce, remarriage is wrong. And that's where I think when we talk about divorce in Scripture, that's where many of the controversies have come in. And I want us to look at this a little bit deeper. Let's also look at Matthew chapter 19. Again, we're just going to go through these quickly. Um, I'll have some comments on them, but the passages are listed for you to study in depth if you wish. Matthew chapter 19, beginning in verse 1, actually. I'm going to read through verse 9. And when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan, and large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him, asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, here's the exception clause, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. So we see here what Jesus is teaching in Matthew chapter 19 kind of gives us a little bit more of a background into the context of marriage. What God has brought together, we should not undo. But we see the reason here that divorce is permissible 
We see this in verse 7 and 8. They said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? Verse 8, he said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce. But from the beginning it was not so. So that allowing is not mandatory. It is merely a permissive. It's permission. It's permissible, yet it's not desirable, nor is it ever good. And that's what I want us to try to unpack here a little bit deeper. Let's look at Mark chapter 10 as well. Mark's gospel helps us see this too. Mark chapter 10. Beginning in verse 2. Again, introducing this, it's as if Pharisees are coming up and challenging Jesus. Very similar scenario here with Matthew chapter 19. Mark chapter 10, verse 2, And Pharisees came up, and in order to test him, said, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, What did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh." So they are no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Verse 10 through 12. And in the house, the disciples asked him again. So this is after the Pharisees, now it's just Jesus and his twelve. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. He said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. So Mark's gospel does not include what we see in Matthew's gospel, that exception clause. So this has brought up a lot of controversy and conflict in the church. But we have to see here that we have to understand what Jesus is dealing with here in Matthew chapter 5. Every time that Jesus addresses this, it seems like there are legalistic religious folks around trying to test and challenge and prod the great teacher. And what Jesus is doing in the Sermon on the Mount, we've seen this before, and it's going to be a continuous theme, that Jesus is addressing the misunderstanding and the misapplication of God's law that the rabbinic tradition had, had developed and taken it far beyond God's original intent. And God, and Jesus is saying here, I am here to fulfill the law to show you that God's law, number one, is still valid and important, but there's a deeper truth here that you're overlooking. And so the point here in Matthew chapter 5, 31 through 32 is not permission for divorce as much as it is seeing the greater call to marriage and the pain that divorce brings. He's addressing here in verse 31 and 32 The rabbinic law that has distorted God's original intent. Verse 31, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. What is going on there? The excuses for the divorce had grown far beyond infidelity. It had grown to the point that if your wife burned the biscuits, men, you could send her out the front door, never to see her again. Aren't you glad that we live in a modern world where, ladies, you have a little bit more power. Matter of fact, in this day and age, ladies, if you if your husband doesn't like the biscuits, what do you tell him? Cook your own. 
But you have to understand in this context, and, and, you know, and for most of human history, and I would argue even today around the world, in many parts of the world, women are economically dependent on the men. And if you burn the biscuits, oh, you're fired. I mean, that's kind of some foolish things. I would say even, one thing even more about this, the rabbinic tradition had gone to the point that if a husband actually saw another woman that was more beautiful than his wife, he could argue in that law that my wife has failed me by not keeping her beauty to my standards, so therefore I'm writing her a certificate of divorce to go marry the younger woman. And they, and they were justifying this with God's law. Now, all of us are sitting there just laughing at ourselves and shaking our head going, that's silliness. Of course it's silliness. And Jesus is calling out the silliness of how drastic that the divorce decrees had become. Nowhere in this time period could a woman successfully divorce her husband. It would have to be a very drastic situation for the local religious leaders to grant a divorce that a woman petitioned for. It was Primarily, I would say 100% the men who issued the divorce decree. And it was always, well, not always, it was mostly over frivolous things. Now, as we listen to this, the married people in this room, how many of us listening to that are thinking, boy, I wish I could divorce my wife or my spouse for this, that, or the other? How many have actually, well, I'm not going to have you raise hands, but let's just be honest. Marriage is hard. It's a wonderful, beautiful thing. And the longer you're married, there may, there may, may, I'm emphasizing may, there may come times in your marriage that you are so frustrated with each other, you may not act on divorce, but boy, you wish you could. Maybe even just for a fleeting moment. And Jesus is teaching very clearly here, verse 31 and 32, that divorce is not something that is flippant. It's not something that you just casually go into. The rabbinic tradition had added so many number of exceptions to the divorce decrees beyond infidelity that it had gotten out of hand. Now, do we not live in a modern secular age outside of God's law that you can go to a lawyer and get a divorce in an afternoon for 300 bucks? You realize that? No fault divorce. Just show up in the office, the lawyer will write up the papers, give the lawyer $300, and you're done. You see how extreme we've gotten in our culture. We have taken marriage and placed it as something that, as long as it is satisfying to me and makes me happy, it's good, but the minute I'm dissatisfied, I'll just move on. So nothing has really changed from the time of Jesus till now, except we don't go to the pastor anymore to talk about our marriage problems. We just go get divorces and then tell the pastor later how awful our husband was or how awful our wife was and we just went and got a divorce and pastor, thank you for praying for me. See the point? We don't seek godly counsel. We don't seek uh, support from one another in the church anymore. We just fester in our anger with one another and we just go out and whatever makes me happy, we just go through it and we just take our marriage vows and throw them in the trash. Can't we just be real? It's the world we live in. 
And divorce in the church is no different. Divorce in the church is just as rampant as it is in the world. And that's a problem. Now, the issue here with divorce is we have to ask the question, if you are, if you do go through a divorce, and we're going to look at some reasons that perhaps might justify that, does divorce automatically then give you the right to remarry? There's a lot of controversy. Here's, here's really where much of the controversy comes. There is a traditional Catholic view that many of the early church fathers argued for that divorce was only permitted um, in cases of infidelity or adultery. That was it. But remarriage was never permitted. Even if you suffered through that kind of tragedy, the church would never give you permission to remarry. That was the long-held traditional view in the Catholic church. And honestly, I think a lot of it still kind of is. They come up with this alternative called annulment, saying that it's not a divorce, it's just your marriage never existed, which I'm still trying to figure that out. Okay, That's, that's another way to sidestep it all. The Protestant Reformation view is actually uh, more common even in our evangelical t uh, scenarios here. And it's that adultery and desertion are reasons for divorce. If, if a, a, a partner in the marriage uh, goes through an, an act of infidelity and or deserts the other spouse and just leaves, then the one left uh, is not bound. And we're going to look at a passage for that here in a second. And they are permitted to remarry. So you've got two different major uh, views here. And, and let's take a look at 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Let's see what the Apostle Paul has to tell us here. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. You can read the entire chapter. I would encourage you that if you want to do a little bit more personal study in this, this entire chapter of 1 Corinthians 7 is rich um, and it's very, very important. But Paul is addressing Christians in the church who are married to non-believers here. And you have to ask the question, let's say that one spouse is a Christian, the other spouse is clearly not. Maybe they were both married before they were coming to Christ. What do you do? If, one, if, if the non-believer wants to leave the marriage, what does the Christian do? Paul addresses this. Paul is actually echoing Jesus here, let's look at uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, beginning in verse 10. To the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. Now, the verses prior to this, he talks about what God says. And now in verse 10, he says, this is my command to you as an apostle. This is not to the level of God, but it is my direct advice and command to you. To the married, I give this charge, not I, but... Oh, I'm sorry, verse 10 actually is the Lord. Forgive me. To the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. This is dealing with the un, uh, someone who wants to leave. What does the, the Christian say? Let's look at verse 12. 
To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to leave with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved or is not bound. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? So what is Paul saying here? He's giving an apostolic command that the Christian is not the one who seeks the divorce. It is the unbeliever who chooses to leave. The Christian has no power. They should let them leave. Never, never does it say, kick them out the door, get rid of them. No, no, nowhere does he say it. It's the choice of the unbeliever to leave. The Christian is not bound. But the Christian is clearly commanded, you are not the one to end the marriage. So for Christians to first primarily seek a divorce is something that I cannot find anywhere in Scripture. I'm going to let that settle for a second. We have to think here what Paul is saying here in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. He's giving a scenario where one spouse is a believer and one spouse is an unbeliever, but he's highlighting the victim who did not seek the divorce but is now suddenly finding themselves alone. I see this in the church quite often, and I have to argue it's primarily the men who leave the women and it's the Christian wife who is left, but the unbelieving husband has abandoned her and left. Do we then impose a harsh law on the, the Christian wife or the Christian husband whose spouse left them? I don't think that Paul is claiming. He's, he's saying that if you are if you are the one who did not seek the divorce, if you are the one who tried to hold the marriage together, but the other person left you and abandoned you, and you tried your very best to keep the covenant, you are no longer bound to that covenant because they have broken it. You are now free to remarry. I think that's what Paul is saying here. Again, it, it's not a... a it's not one of these do it or else. You are free to remarry. Now, Romans chapter 7, verse 3, Paul also speaks about this, but in that context, he's talking about the scenario where, there, where you are widowed, where a marriage ends because a spouse dies. And I think he's, he's using the same analogy here in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. If someone who is married, the spouse dies, clearly they are free to remarry. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, the believer who does not seek divorce is abandoned by the non-believer. Paul is saying you're free to remarry if you wish or if God directs. So here we can see that the exception clause in Matthew's gospel chapter 5 clearly still applies here, pointing to the idea of infidelity. Jesus is saying you may divorce. But divorce automatically implies 
do you now have the freedom to remarry? There's a couple of views here. We're going to kind of close this out. And I want us to take a look at the book of Malachi as well. Flip over there to the book of Malachi. Let's see if we can see what God is saying here. If you look at Malachi's prophecy and have studied that at any length, God is prophesying through Malachi. Malachi is speaking the words of God here. He's talking about the infidelity of Israel to God. I mean, we see that theme throughout the Old Testament quite often, that God's people Israel repeatedly, for no other wording here, they they cheat on God. How many of us as Christians, how many of us in the church are guilty of the same? We have cheated on God. We have cheated him in many ways with our dedication, our loyalty, our thoughts, our devotion, our tithes. All of that is tied up in the book of Malachi. And and, and the prophecy of Malachi is very clear that abandoning God is akin to divorcing God. And that's what we have to remember. The marriage covenant between a man and a woman is a reflection of God and his love for his church. The marriage of the Lord Jesus Christ and his bride, the church. You see the imagery here. This is why the church and Christians, we should take marriage vows seriously. Look here at Malachi chapter 1. I'm going to highlight verse 10. And, 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 Paul, and Malachi here is talking to the priests. He's talking to the religious leaders here. Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. And then he continues in chapter 2, verse 9. I make you despised and abased before all the peoples inasmuch as you do not keep my ways but show partiality in your instruction. So chapter 1 and chapter 2 here, as, as Malachi is teaching, he's, he's talking directly to the priests and those who were charged with instructing the people. Same thing that Jesus was doing in Matthew chapter 5. He's addressing those who have the responsibility to lead and teach the people. Look at what you've done. You've taken the, the holiness of God and you have taught things in such a way you've distorted God's intent. Look here in Malachi chapter 2, beginning in verse 13. Now the imagery here of marriage and covenant with God. Malachi, speaking God's words here, makes a very harsh comparison to what uh, God's people have done. They have profaned the covenant that they've made with God. Beginning in verse 13. And the second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favors from your hand. Verse 14. But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord has witnessed between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? He was seeking godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. 
For the man who does not love his wife, but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. God is the prime witness of the marriage covenant. When we come before the preacher to get married, who are we standing before? We're standing before God himself. And God is the witness that he knits these two people together and he blesses the covenant that they're making with one another as a reflection of the covenant that God makes with us and that we make with him. This is why marriage is much more important than just a casual event. Ladies, I know from your childhood on up, you are dreaming of that beautiful day of marriage, aren't you? Now, boys, how many of us men, when we were boys, how many of us thought about the marriage day? Not at all. So we know that the marriage ceremony is something that young ladies plan for, dream for, and you should rightly do so. But why? Why do you do that? Is it even in your thoughts and your dreams that I will stand before my God, my maker, and make a covenant with a man who loves me as a reflection of your glory? Is that even taught to young girls anymore? Young boys, as they are being raised to be good men, we have failed them by teaching them you are to protect and love your spouse, your wife, that God will give you someday, and I'm going to teach you as a man how to be that man, to love her, to honor her, to be faithful to her all of your days. We are failing our children because we don't prepare them for the seriousness of the covenant of marriage, that God himself is who we stand before. It is God himself that we make those vows before. And God is saying here in Malachi's prophecy, I am your first witness here in verse 14. God has witnessed the marriage covenant. And because God himself witnessed this marriage covenant, he does so for the hope and the promise in verse 15 that this marriage that is holy and blessed by God will produce offspring that are also holy. That the offspring from the marriage will be a portion of the spirit that is holding that marriage together. You see what we're doing here? And so verse 16, God is making very clear he hates divorce. Divorce is violence against the Lord. Let's make sure we have that very clear. But what does Malachi also teach us? Look here at Malachi chapter 4. Because I don't want to leave our time together in Matthew chapter 5, verses 31 through 32, with any kind of hope of condemnation as bad as divorce is, there is hope. We have to think here that, number one, Jesus clearly sees divorce as tragedy. Okay, But there is always hope. You see, Jesus in Matthew chapter 5, he's actually using exaggerated language to prove a point. You see this all throughout the Sermon on the Mount. He's speaking about divorce emphasizing God's hatred for it, and he's, he's using exaggerated language to heighten the importance of the marriage vow. 
But let's understand that divorce is difficult. Let's close with this point here. Divorce is difficult. And never as a pastor have I ever advised any couple to seek divorce. Period. Now, I've counseled a lot of couples after the fact. We were divorced for whatever reason. Can you help us? I've done a lot of that. But I have never encouraged any couple to seek a divorce. Never. Now, but here are some circumstances that may justify divorce. Number one, clearly, infidelity. It's not a command to divorce. I would argue that Jesus is saying, figure it out, work it out, let's find some redemption and some hope through this and give God the glory even, in, even though there was sin, let's figure out how we can redeem this and keep the marriage together. But there are also some circumstances that may justify divorce as the lesser evil. Because divorce is evil. I'm just going, it's hard, it's painful, it's, it's destructive. But there may be times where divorce is permissible. And I want to use the clear distinction of language, permissible versus mandatory. Nowhere in Scripture do we see that divorce is mandatory. In the Old Testament law, perhaps, but even then the spirit of that law was much different. But divorce may be permissible in times of infidelity or desertion like we looked at, but I would also argue in situations of physical abuse that are the result of anger. We looked at that a few weeks back. There may be a time where the anger and the abuse is so bad that the greater evil is the anger and the abuse and the lesser evil is the divorce. Doesn't mean that the divorce is pleasant. Doesn't even mean that the divorce is commanded. It means that you may be in a situation where you have abuse going on and there might be a circumstance to, for the safety of the children and the safety of the, of the wife. Or I should have, should I have to argue, I've seen a few women that could whoop up on the husband too. So let's just make sure we, right? Let's just, it's not just a gender thing, it's, right? Try to work on the anger, try to work on the abuse. Let's get some counsel and see if we can resolve this. But if it comes to the extreme point where danger and life is threatened, there may be times where divorce may be permissible, but I would say only in the case that there is no hope of restoration. I want to close with Malachi chapter 4 after what I just said here. Malachi chapter 4. There are those in this room who have gone through the pain and the suffering of a divorce. I am not going to take that lightly. I want to be as sensitive to that as I can. Let's look here at Malachi chapter 4. Here's the hope. Even at the end of Malachi speaking the words of the Lord about the, the horror of divorce. Look here at Malachi chapter 4. Beginning in verse 2. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. There is healing in the rise of righteousness. We see this in the Old Testament prophets all the time, that God brings judgment upon his rebellious 
people who are full of infidelity toward him. And he brings judgment and he shows the horror that is happening and the evil and the pain that is going on, but he always gives a glimmer of hope and restoration and healing. So when it comes to divorce, let's make sure we understand that divorce is violence against the Lord, period. Just like all sin is a violence against the Lord, all that we do outside of God's grace, outside of His love and protection, as we flaunt ourselves over God, that is always evil, that is always violence against Him, but there is always hope and healing. If you are in this room and you have been through the pain and the suffering of divorce, if you are someone who grew up in a divorce household, as I did, my parents were divorced when I was eight years old. My mother raised three of us basically on her own. My dad was always there, but then he wasn't. My mother worked as a secretary in an insurance office for 30 years and raised three kids on that salary. We suffered. Divorce is not just the pain between the marriage. It can also, I mean, it clearly suffers the offspring from that marriage. The pain of divorce goes farther than just the two people who are angry with one another and can't get along. But if you have been through that, I'm, I'm here to tell you there's hope in the gospel that restoration and healing is possible and, and, and the forgiveness of God is always possible. Now, Will I counsel you to remarry? It depends on the circumstance of when you were divorced and the current circumstance you're in now. I, little, I would want to really sit and love on you and talk with you and pray with you and let's get to know your circumstance. Is it right to remarry? I don't know. I would get, That's the same counsel I give to young 20-year-olds who want to get married. Are you sure about this? Let's figure out if this is right. Same counsel to anybody who wants to get married. But if you've been divorced, there's other things that need to be discussed. Just like if you've been widowed, there's other things to discuss. If there's children involved, there's a lot to discuss. So I'm saying, so divorce and remarriage is just not an instant, let's just go do it. It's there's a lot there in the Christian life that we have to unpack and let's pray about it and let's seek the Lord's peace. Let's understand if this is his will or not. That's my point. But it's cautious. And that's what Jesus is saying here. Do not take the laws of divorce and marriage that God has given and flippantly just run away with it and, and make any kind of excuse that you can for divorce and any kind of excuse to remarry because you were tired of your old spouse. And, and let's just make sure that this is the right thing. And remember the covenant that you made with your spouse before the Lord. But God is also a righteous and just God and he will never condemn the one who is holy in his presence and never wanted the divorce, never sought the divorce and wanted to keep the covenant together. There is always love and redemption in all failings. Amen. And that's what I want to close us with. Because Jesus is not teaching that divorce is to never happen, nor is marriage just impossible, or remarriage impossible. He's teaching a deeper truth here. Marriage is a covenant 
between men and women before God. How many of us in this room, even if we're not married, I've got a few people in here who are not married, Some, a lot of you are. How many of us can even take that same attitude outside of the marriage covenant to where our covenant with God has been distorted and actually taken for granted? Nothing different. Are we divorcing God in our attitudes even though we may not be divorcing our spouse? I want to let that just settle. Let me pray for us. Father God, we thank you for your word. And God, I thank you for your love that you have given us structure as your people, but you've also given us grace in that structure. I pray, God, that you would never allow us to take your love and your law for granted. And any time that in our thoughts we think that we are justified in disobeying your law, I pray, God, that you would cause us to see how wrong that is. And I pray, God, that whenever we are in struggles with relationships with one another, when we are in struggles with our relationships with the world around us, that you would cause us to see that we are bought with a price. And dear God, that we do not divorce ourselves from you and we do not divorce ourselves from one another. You've given us the gift of grace. You've given us redemption and hope and forgiveness. And I pray, God, that you would teach us to employ that with one another and that you would cause us to be a dedicated and loyal people as we serve you. Lord, there are many in this room that I know have had a past of divorce. Lord, I pray that you would love them and realize and let them realize there is no condemnation, yet at the same time, they already know how serious the divorce is. And I pray, God, that you would allow your spirit to restore anyone who has this pain and this baggage, and this trauma to the point that they feel loved but forgiven. Help us, God, to be your people. Help us to be loyal. And that's our prayer. Please bless us today, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.